I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Thank you all for coming. It's really, really good to see you all here again. Um... We are delighted to welcome back Lauren Elkin to talk about Art Monsters. Um, there's been a lot of excitement about this book and from experience I can say there's been a lot of excitement about this event as well. So thank you all very much for being here. I'm a little breathless, sorry, I'm uh, quite excited. <laughs> um, I'm also delighted to welcome Vanessa Peterson, Associate Editor of Freeze, who's going to be talking to Lauren tonight. I can't wait to hear what you've both got to say. Thank you very much for being here, Vanessa, too. Um, as usual, the conversation will be about 40, 45 minutes. One of us will have the microphone. We can do some questions at the end, 10 or 15 minutes. And then there'll be time to have a glass of wine and hopefully come and buy lots of books from us at the end. Um, as usual, the fire exits the doors. So if it's necessary, use the doors to get out. Like my colleague John says, don't do anything daft, use the doors. Please be careful of any wine glasses that are on the floor because they're easy to kick over. And if you want to tweet or Instagram or whatever about the event while it's on, you'd be very welcome. It's encouraged, but make sure your phones are switched off while you do that. Um, that's it. There's just actually one more thing, which is give our guests a very warm welcome. Thank you both so much. Cheers. Um, I'm really honoured to be here speaking about this really incredible book, Art Monsters, and really bodies in feminist art. And as Chris Krauss says, it is destined to become a new classic, and I wholeheartedly agree. Um, just as a kind of short, short intro, or two prompts that I thought would be really important for thinking about this event today. Um, is that, you know, the title itself comes from um, Jenny Offill's department, of speculation, and um, the quote is um, from Offal, um, my plan was never to get married, I was going to be an art monster. Women almost never become art monsters because art monsters only concern themselves with art, never mundane things. And I think that that is a really important prompt for so many of the thoughts that Lauren brings to the page and to the book. And the second thing that I think is really important is um, also in the introduction, Lauren quotes um, Theorist of Monstrosity, which I thought was uh, quite an interesting job title. Uh, Teratologist. 
uh, way to define oneself, uh, Jeffrey Jerome Cohen, um, and he states, we can understand the culture by what it calls monstrous. The monster stands for everything a society casts out. And I think that those two phrases, ideas are really, really important hooks for this. Um, mm. So yeah, I guess without further ado, you're going to read <laughs> a little bit from the book. Yeah, but, yeah, really cool. excited. Thank you, Vanessa. Thank you everyone for coming. It is so amazing to see all of your beautiful faces here. Really, this is doing my heart like good things. Um, I wonder, is the um, sound okay? It feels like there's a little bit of reverb. Yeah, can you hear back there? It's okay. Okay, great. Uh, so yeah, I am gonna read a little bit from the beginning. Um, as, uh, sorry, it's page nine, I think. Um, as Vanessa so helpfully set up for us, you know, in case you didn't know, the term art monster comes from Jenny Offal's 2014 novel, Department of Speculation, which is a novel in fragments about um, this wife and mother who has seen her world contract into the four walls of her home and from this, you know, the rich life she had as a, as a creative practitioner into someone who just like tries to stay up um, through a day so she can take care of her child. Um, and that was a term that, sort of immediately made its way into the feminist lexicon, right? People were sort of instantaneously like, am I an art monster? I'm an art monster. <laughs> and there were um, like essays galore. And I was really struck by it because I too had this moment of like, yes, I totally get this term. What does it mean though? So I went looking it up and couldn't actually find anything, you know, this term art monster. And I said, oh, she made it up. Oh God, she's such a good writer, wow. Um, and, but got to thinking, I didn't know if, as I thought about how, how quickly I had, I had identified with it, I thought, well, at this point in my life, I was not, <clears throat> excuse me, I was not yet a mother. So there's something else in this term besides just, isn't it awful to have, have to make this decision between being a caregiver and being an artist, that there is some other kind of element of like feeling kind of fenced in or constricted that people were responding to in that term or women were responding to principally in that term. And that's what I wanted to investigate. Um, so I ended up like doing the kind of obligatory um, chapeau to Jenny Offal, but actually realizing that what I wanted to use as a point of departure was um, Virginia Woolf's essay, Professions for Women from 1931. Um, because that's the essay where she cites or comes up with the idea of the angel and or refers to the angel in the house, which is um, hearkening back to a, a Victorian poem that her own great aunt, the photographer Julia Margaret Cameron, had um, made, sort of created an image of in the, in the form of this kind of ethereal looking um, young woman with kind of, yeah flowing hair and a far off expression in her eyes. Um, so Wolf comes back to this term, the angel in the house in this essay um, and talks about, as everyone I'm sure here knows, the way that in order to become a writer, she had to kill the angel. She had to, you know, get rid of this like little fairy on her shoulder saying like, be, be, be pure, be tender, flatter the men, you know, be agreeable. Just say, get out. I'm not gonna be tender. I'm not gonna flatter. I'm gonna do what I have to do. Um, but in that essay, she actually says that there are two main challenges that faced her um, as a woman writer. One was killing the angel in the house. The second, I have to read it, it's the epigraph, and I just want to make sure I don't mangle it, because, you know, can't be mangling Virginia Woolf. Um, 
These were two of the adventures of my professional life. The first, killing the angel in the house, I think I solved. She died. But the second, telling the truth about my own experiences as a body, I do not think I solved. I doubt that any woman has solved it yet. Um, and then a bit later in the essay, she speculates maybe in 50 years, women will have figured out a way to finally tell the truths of their experiences as bodies um, and, and make that the subject of their art, to let their imaginations go into these very bodily domains that in Wolf's day, she really felt that she couldn't. So I start here, well, but I'm going to read anyway, starts with Carolee Schneeman, 1975. It is not quite 50 years after Wolf's speech. The artist Carolee Schneeman is standing on a table in an art gallery in East Hampton, New York, wearing neither petticoat nor skirts. In fact, she's not wearing much of anything, save for a dainty little apron, which she soon removes. She has smeared herself with dark paint. She opens a copy of the zine she has written, Cezanne, she was a great painter, and begins to read, striking a series of art model poses. Then she puts the book down, widens her stance, and slowly draws a roll of paper from her vagina. It looks a bit like an umbilical cord, thick and helical. She reads aloud from it. I met a happy man, a structuralist filmmaker. He said, we are fond of you. You are charming, but don't ask us to look at your films. We cannot. There are certain films we cannot look at. The personal clutter, the persistence of feelings, the hand-touch sensibility, the diaristic indulgence, the painterly mess, the dense gestalt, the primitive techniques. I didn't want to pull a scroll out of my vagina and read it in public, Schneeman has said, but she believed that performance was made necessary by the terror the culture expressed at her attempts to make overt what it wanted to suppress. With interior scroll, Schneeman wanted to physicalize the invisible, marginalized, and deeply suppressed history of the vulva, the powerful source of orgasmic pleasure, of birth, of transformation, of menstruation, of maternity, to show that it is not a dead, invisible place. Schneeman gave the female body a way to speak it had not previously been able to access. Interior scroll made the vulvic space visible and legible, allowing it to be potentially procreative, but creative. When Schneeman died in 2019, I posted an image from this performance on my Instagram account to pay tribute to her. Instagram took it down. And we've got a beautiful, um, like, I don't know if you can all see, but it like, takes up two pages. Um, we had this idea with Graham, who did the, this, the layout of the book, and it was just like, the first time I saw that, I was like, fuck yeah, look at her. Look at her pulling that scroll out of her vagina in my book. I love it. Um, so yeah, it couldn't appear on Instagram, but you better believe it's in my book. Um, so, but Schneeman would have expected nothing else than to be censored. From the earliest days of her career as an artist, her work was attacked for what it dared to depict. As an undergraduate lacking access to nude models, she painted her naked boyfriend while he slept, his flaccid penis, as well as herself without clothes, and was kicked out of art school. No objections were raised to her posing nude for her fellow male painting students, notes the curator Sabine Breitweiser. And when she included her clitoris in her eye-body photographs of 1963, the art world recoiled. Why is it in the art world rather than a porno world? 
They called it obscene, pornographic, said it had nothing to do with art. Obscene, possibly derived from ob in front of, and canum, filth. The obscene puts us in front of filth, what ought to be scrubbed off or cordoned off, matter out of place in the anthropologist Mary Douglas's definition of dirt and impurity. The unseeable parts of the female body are, in art, matter out of place. In 1991, Schneeman published a perceptive essay on the body, obscenity, and the intersections of professionalism and sexism called the obscene body politic. If in the preceding decades, women had barged into the art world, she wrote, they were driven by the anger of several millennia at being sidelined as artists, denied their pronouns, the artist, he, sexualized and idealized, fetishized, while their actual bodies were characterized as defiling, stinking, contaminating. And there's a great quote I have elsewhere from the philosopher Tertullian who says that woman is a temple built over a sewer. Gives you an idea of the thinking about the female body for millennia. Um, in a 1990s documentary about women artists, Schneeman says in voiceover, as an image of the Rokeby Venus appears on the screen, historically, I was supposed to be confined to a canvas, interred in fact as an image. So the sense that I was authenticated as an image maker who also had a depictive body was an enormous question for me. Could I have authority in a culture where there was no pronoun that had any authority in those years except he, the artist he, the student he. Being both artist and arch, Neyman said, challenged and threatened the psychic territorial power lines by which women were admitted to the art stud club, so long as they behaved enough like men and made work clearly in the traditions and pathways hacked out by the men. Schneeman, like many feminist artists of the 70s, wanted to be taken seriously, but she doubled down on the challenges posed by her gender and her body. In one performance piece, Naked Action Lecture of 1968, she stripped while giving a slide lecture on art history. Art monster, I thought, walking through the massive Schneeman retrospective at MoMA PS1 in late 2017. If Awful's term has resonated so strongly in recent years, I think it is in part because it points to the ways in which the culture punishes women for being something other than small and silent. Our boundaries have been policed. When we have overspilled them, we've been called disgusting. What I think I hear in the term art monster is something to do with the way monstrosity authorizes women to thwart received ideas about how we and our art should be look, behave. And yet, in researching this book, as I've looked at work by writers and artists like Wolf and Schneeman, I've become less invested in legislating whether someone is or isn't an art monster. I realized the word monster was just as effective as a verb, art monsters. In this new form, the term tells us something about what it is that art does. It makes the familiar strange, wakes us from our habits, enables us to envision other ways of being, and lets the body and the imagination speak and dream outside the strict boundaries placed on them by society, patriarchy, internalized misogyny. However we read it as a noun or a verb, the art monster idea is a dare to overwhelm the limits assigned to us and to invent our own definitions of beauty. That's all I'll read for today. <laughs> nerve-wracking <laughs> <laughs> I mean that is such a 
powerful introduction, I think, to the ideas that you set out in the book. And one thing that I found really interesting is actually right at the end, um, you mentioned the dates that you wrote this book, which is mm. 2017 to 2022, also in three different cities. Mm -hmm. And it's very much rooted in this uh, 1970s feminist art movement, mm. second wave feminism. It obviously goes into lots of other directions, think about Schneemann, Mendieta, so then think about Kara Walker to Ebony G. Patterson. And so I suppose thinking about the ideas of the monstrous and the unruly, the unsightly, the silences, I, I'd really love to know about the process of pulling together mm. this constellation of artists because it's so rich and mm -hmm. wide and travels <laughs> across so many different sort of arenas and mm. spaces. And I'd really love to know more about your process. Yeah, um, it was a really weird process. Um, I have an academic training, but as a literature scholar, I'm not an art historian. I've done a lot of coursework in art history, um, but not like a PhD in it. Um, so I, I felt a bit like uh, an expert interloper in somebody else's discipline. So I, I had the, you know, the wherewithal to like, look at Carolee Schneemann and then get into the secondary material, but um, no sense of like what the field was and how it was taught and you know how I might be intervening in it as as a scholar or a writer. Um, so it was a little bit haphazard, complicated by the fact that I became pregnant right as I started doing this book. Um, and that, yeah, it's just made the book become its own kind of animal. Um, and it felt, yeah, it became a different kind of book than I'd intended to write because I started living out this like edge limit experience of embodiment at that time. So I had thought that it would be much more about, I don't know, the feminine grotesque and, and overspilling our boundaries and everything. But I started to think that it needed to be much more closely hewing to, to an idea about embodiment, just embodiment and how writers and artists got the body into work, into the work that they were making. Um, so yeah, I, I would say really, there were some artists that I did a deep dive with, um, like Schneeman or Wilkie, Hannah Wilkie, um, but there were others that because of the, you know, specificities of early motherhood and the pandemic and having only occasional access to libraries, um, others I had to sort of do a very, um, like almost new critical engagement with where it's like just me and my experience of the work. Um, and you know, those, those are moments where it's like, like so Kara Walker, for instance, I did once I was able to get into a library, like look at some of the work that, that's been done on her, but I, it, it, was, it was almost too late to then do an engagement with the critical writing on Kara Walker. Um, so for instance, last night I was reading um, Christina Sharp's Ordinary Notes and thinking like, oh God, I wonder what she would have to say if she wrote about Kara Walker. And I, so I Googled Christina Sharp, Kara Walker. Of course, she's got a fucking book <laughs> in which there's a yeah, major part is consecrated to Kara Walker. So there's, I had a real sense, you know, just last night of like, oh yeah, this book, what a beast um, that I missed out on, on Christina Sharp's monstrous intimacies. Uh, gonna go check it out. But um, yeah, so it was a book that I think sort of in terms of the way that it unfolded, bridges a time in my life where I was a very obedient kind of researcher and a time in my life where I'm a writer and no longer a professional academic and just kind of, you know, doing what I can with the material that I, <laughs> that I have in front of me and acknowledging my own kind of limitations as, as uh, in terms of the research that I can do. Um, but yeah, but then sort, sort of to go maybe more to what you were asking, um, 
I ended up feeling like it wasn't that interesting to me, and I assumed to a reader, to do a kind of chronological march through feminist history, because there is a lot written about this stuff. You know, I am far from the first person to, to write about Carol Schneeman, um, or Kara Walker, as it turns out. Um, but there, I had a real sense of like, there being commonalities across moments, and I mean, this is going to sound incredibly like, I don't know, annoying, but like, Julia Kristeva has this concept of intertextuality, which is not just that, you know, texts uh, exist in a kind of webby or constellation type relationship to one another, but that, you know, it's not just that like Tristram Shandy might have influenced James Joyce, it's that we, you know, can read back the other way as well, that like James, because James Joyce wrote Ulysses, we understand Tristram Shandy differently. Um, so it's that same sort of idea that you know, Betty Saar, for instance, who I have a chapter on, like, loathes Kara Walker, but they're doing something that's so closely related, and they're dealing with some of the same questions. And so, you know, maybe it wouldn't be appropriate in an academic setting to talk about them together, or you'd have to do a lot of, like, scaffolding to make it work. Um, but in a book like this, I could kind of, like, I felt like I was swinging branch to branch. Like, now it's Kristeva, now it's Le Spectre, now it's... You know, you've Sedgwick, and now it's Betty Saar. Um, and I felt a lot of freedom as a writer rather than an academic to be able to do that. Yes, we, we, we met the other day and we, we had a long conversation about the process and thinking about, about the book. And one thing that I guess we spoke about and I thought was a really interesting provocation or a thought as someone who commissions and edits mm -hmm. art criticism was the relationship of distance, mm. you know, because you've, you've pointed out there that you aren't an art historian, you aren't kind of versed in that space or that mm -hmm. world, and you are coming as it, as a, not as an outsider, but there's a degree of distance. Yeah. And I'm wondering there, did that, did that distance offer you that freedom to kind of push? Because another thing that I saw was how much of yourself is in the text, mm. you know, this level of or idea of embodied criticism, your, your life, your stories, mm. your ideas, your thinking is very much present as mm -hmm. well. And I'd love to hear you think or talk more about that relationship mm. with like criticism and, and distance and mm. also emotion and feeling as well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's so interesting that you say that some other people have, have mentioned, have, commented on how much of myself there is in it. And I was surprised because, you know, after a book like Flaneuse, where, like, I literally have a chapter about my ex-boyfriend in Tokyo, um, <laughs> to a book like this where, like, you know, I've mentioned, I mentioned my partner in passing, but there's, there aren't any stories from my life, really. It's more I was at the Tate Liverpool in 2016 and saw this Rebecca Horn photograph, or I was at, you know, MoMA in 2017 and saw the Schneeman show. Um, and then... There's obviously that bit about pregnancy that, that kind of threads through. But it felt like um, a very different book in that sense that I did have the freedom to leave myself out of it and just kind of look and see where my looking took me. It felt like I was following a line. Um, I know I just used the branch-to-branch -branch <laughs> metaphor, which is a terrible one. Um, the one that I think about in the book in terms of the book's own construction um, is that I just kind of picked, I would pick something up and then see where it took me. Um, and it took me wherever, like, my own reading and thinking and looking had um, 
it's like that had shaped the path that the line was going to take. And so I ended up finding, um, finding my way to Eva Hesse, obviously, as you do. Um, and those amazing tangled skein sculptures that she did, the one in fiberglass and the one in rope. And there's that one photograph that I have kind of early on in the book of Eva Hesse laying down on her couch with the rope sculpture on her stomach. And it just looks heavy and unwieldy and tangled. And I was like, that's me in this book. <laughs> I really identify with this. So yeah, I mean, in terms of distance, there was a sense that I didn't, I mean, you'll know, like, I didn't write very much about literature. Um, and what, what literature I did write about was way outside my, my field, which is like 20th century French and British literature. This is like Kathy Acker and Theresa Hak Young Cha. Um, so I think I felt a certain amount of freedom to follow the line and not worry too much about what I was doing and was I being responsible and what was I saying and what were the implications. I could just do this kind of pure exploration of, of I don't know, of the body and, and form and, and feminist history. I mean, that's, it's really interesting to me to hear that because I feel what I was thinking often when I was reading was that sense of palpable feeling, mm. if that makes sense. <laughs> I mean, if I can think back to, you know, you describe Kafiaka, for instance, as, as being your abject mm. and bringing you up against the limits of yourself, for instance. And the, these kind of feel visceral when I was mm. reading them, I was kind of underlining, kind of jotting down lots of notes on the side mm. because there's a real, real sense of, of yeah, I say depth of, mm -hmm. of, of feeling. And I, and I wonder that if, you know, thinking about that and thinking about the monstrous and thinking about also the times in which we live in and mm. the ways in which you've written this book, given the time span of being, you know, COVID, mm. Black Lives Matter, Trump. We can move through so many political yeah. moments that have brought about that level of yeah. the abject. Um, and I'm wondering the, the, that level of emotion of the outside mm. political climate mm. and erosion of rights for so many people, mm -hmm. women, um, Roe versus Wade, for instance, seep into into your thinking mm. the way that you wrote because I, I felt that a lot mm. throughout the book yeah I mean I think probably I couldn't do anything else but be um absorbing I mean god what a few years that was 2017 to 2022 um I started writing the book right about when Trump took office <laughs> um and was finishing it just as they overturned Roe versus Wade, uh, you know, the culmination of the Trumpian project of, of totally taking over the court. Um, and yeah, and through COVID and the Black Lives Matter protests and George Floyd. And I mean, yeah, it, it was a very difficult time to think of anything other than the body and bodies and what we do to our bodies and to other people's bodies, basically. How we, how we had to protect ourselves from other people's bodies even. Um, and how some people had no protection from other people's bodies. So it was a really, yeah, I think, what is it called when like something, you notice something and then you start seeing it again and again and again, that's some kind of phenomenon. Um, but it wasn't just me, we were all living this very embodied series of phenomena together. Um, in terms of feeling and affect, there's a chapter on um, Judith Scott, the, the artist, who I came to through Eve Sedgwick, who was one of my teachers in graduate school at, in New York. And 
Eve's book, um, Touching Feeling, has Judith Scott on the cover hugging her one of her works of art. And um, the photograph is in the book. I recommend you, you have a look if you have the time. Um, it's this amazing image of this woman. She had Down syndrome. She was raised in an institution far away from her family. She was deaf. She didn't speak. Um, but she was an amazing artist and had just the, a sense for texture and um, color and, and made these amazing like woven pieces. And, and the photographer, Leon, Leon Borderstein, has a picture of her hugging one of her works. And Eve Sedgwick talks about that photograph in Touching Feeling and writes about um, the concept of texture with two X's as opposed to texture with one X, uh, which her, her former graduate student, Renu Bora, wrote an important paper about. And that, I think that for me, I read that obviously in grad school a long time ago, and it stayed in my mind as just, first of all, the, the picture of Judith Scott hugging her art. I love that, you know? There's times when we are so thwarted by our work and we just want to be rid of it. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, I made this. Like, this is mine. This is of me somehow. It's like a child. Um, and it might sound very sentimental, but I became very interested in sentimentality and in touch and affect and and re-aestheticizing the aesthetic. You know, this aesthetic goes to me. It has to do with touch. And we're so, like, dominated by this Kantian kind of aesthetics of, of distance and um, and object, objectivity. And, you know, it's so not about touch. And I don't know, the more I was reading around and, and you know, feminist archives, the more I realized this is actually an important part of the feminist project was to, to re-aestheticize the aesthetic and to, um, I read a bit about the poet Mary Rufel to kind of revalorize sentiment as rooted in the feelings as well as the mind and the intellect. Um, so yeah, I, sorry, I feel like I'm rambling at this point, but this is one of my, one of my, like, one of the strands that I feel like I'm not done with, like it just kind of leads its way right out of the book. So we'll see where it goes next. <laughs> and with that sense of, you know, you touch upon so many different mm. areas and arenas. And even then, as you were speaking, I was thinking about, you know, the ways in which you spoke about femininity and craft mm. in relation to art and the ways in which there are these distinctions mm. and the ways in which I suppose if we go back through art history, there have been these ways of boxing women into mm. these spaces of what they are doing, of the nude, of mm. what's, what's happening here. Yeah. And so to come back, I guess, to your sort of thesis of the art monster and women making these monstrous mm. works of art, you speak about it, I guess, suggesting that it isn't solely thinking about the biography <coughs> of, 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 of the artist, mm -hmm. but it's also about what they're making. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'd love to know through your journey, through all the different artists, who was speaking loudly to you about these sort of feelings mm. of, of the monstrous? That's a very good question. I mean, they all they all spoke in different ways, you know. I mean, the first person who comes to mind is Eva Hesse, but she wasn't thinking about monstrosity at all. And I'm not sure that I would think of her as an art monster necessarily, maybe. Um, she was making work that um, she described as ucky, not yucky, but ucky, um, having like texture, tactility, work that you can get information about the way it was made by looking at it, texture with two X's. Um, and she didn't care 
if the work lasted or not. Well, I should modify that. At different times, she said different things. Sometimes she said, you know, what do I care if it lasts? You know, I'm making it now. It exists now. That's what it, what's important. It's almost like performance art in the form of sculpture. Um, but then else, other times, I think even shortly before her untimely death, um, she was saying, like, I do feel kind of bad that people are paying money for this and it's not going to last and I feel like I should tell them. Um, and it's a big issue now in, in Hess, like Hesse studies how to conserve the work or if we should conserve, the, if they should, not, I'm not in that community, but yeah, those people, they talk about, should we conserve this work or not, or just let it disintegrate, you know, in, as, as Hesse might have intended, but we don't actually know that. So that idea that, that the work doesn't have to be this like sacrosanct thing that must be conserved and protected and framed, um, and importantly, sold and resold, um, it, it's, it's such a feminist idea and it's, so radical. I mean, it just goes right right against everything we think about in terms of the art market and and the art heritage industry. So for me, that's a pretty monstrous gesture in the way that I'm understanding monstrosity is not necessarily just like vampires and scary creatures, but like uh, an aesthetics of touch and and viscerality and, and uckiness. And suppose that there's something I was thinking about. You, you mentioned, you know, Kara Walker, mm. Betty Saar. And one of the, the notes or prompts to myself was about the limits of the monstrous. Ah. Because, <laughs> um, because, you know, I think what I really enjoy is the reflection I see on the page mm -hmm. of can someone go too far? Mm -hmm. Can someone push something yeah. too far? Yeah. And I think that, you know, speaking about Kara Walker, Betty mm -hmm. Saar, you know, there was this, I suppose, intergenerational divide mm -hmm. of how, as you say, they were working in very similar ways mm -hmm. and doing very similar things mm -hmm. in talking about African-American experience mm -hmm. and what it was like to be a black woman yeah. in America. But they deeply disagreed mm. on how to tell that story. Yeah. Was Betty Saar, um, was, was Kara Walker, sorry, making this for, you know, quote unquote, mm. as Betty Saar says, a, a white establishment, yeah. an art establishment. And, you know, then we moved to Dana Schutz at the Whitney mm. Biennial. Yeah. You touch upon quite a few different areas mm -hmm. where there is this conflict yeah. <laughs> or there's this rubbing up against each other where it's quite bristly, it's yeah. quite uncertain. And I suppose in your reading and your thinking, did mm. that, how did that come to, how did you come to think about mm. that sort of friction and that tension? Yeah. yeah. Um, that it, it just evolved as I was writing. As I said, I you know was following this line. I started with Betty Saar because I was really, I was interested in the fragment and in collage and assemblage and and um, had come across uh, a piece I think by Sasha Bonet in the Paris Review Daily. Is that is that her full name? I might be leaving out a name. Um, who writes about the importance of patchworking for black female artists and um, harkens back to Lubana Hamid's idea of like gathering and reusing. And that seemed like a really interesting kind of area of um, kind of modernist or avant-garde aesthetics um, that I was interested in in general, but you don't, you hear just about the kind of like macho, like I have shored these fragments again against my ruins, you know, idea of modernism and the fragment, you don't often hear about black women artists, what they did with the fragment. Um, so I, that was how I, I got to Saar. And then, I don't know, I thought like, independently, I have to write about this massive um, Mammy Sphinx sugar sculpture that Kara Walker made, because that's monstrous, right? 
Um, and then as I kind of walked along the line with Betty Saar, and then I was like, oh, she hates Kara Walker. Oh, that's interesting. So now how am I going to loop in, you know, the, the sugar sculpture, a subtlety, um, and put them together in conversation? And then as I'm reading and researching, as you do, like the Dana Schutz Emmett Till painting kept coming up. And I was like, I'm leaving that one way over there. That is not, I'm not going there. I'm not interested in this conversation about what artists can or can't do, because I think it's nonsense. Um, the whole like American dirt hoo-ha was like, can this basically white woman write about these Mexican you know, refugees? And it's like, maybe, maybe she could have if she'd written a good book, but actually she wrote a really crap book. And that might be the problem that everyone had with it, that it was written in this incredibly hackneyed like, language that writes itself. Like it just wasn't a good intervention. Um, I think that a white woman can write about Mexican refugees if she does it well. Um, Dana Schutz didn't do it well. She wasn't really looking at what she was trying to paint. Um, and I won't go into the whole, because I'll end up lecturing. It's a whole like intricate uh, argument and intervention into that debate. Um, but I, I thought I shouldn't go there. And then I just got really frustrated with the fact that the conversation kept coming down to one of censorship. And I was like, this isn't about censorship. This is about institutionality. Who gets to paint what? Who gets to speak and why? Who's heard? Who's bought? And who's not doing their work as an artist? Who's not really looking? Um, and what kinds of stories, you know, even are interesting to be told. I mean, I thought that there is, there's a photograph of um, Carolyn Bryant, the woman who accused Emmett Till of whatever, being too friendly, um, in the courtroom um, when her husband was on trial. And she's sitting there with her son and his fingers are on her arm and she's looking right at the camera. And it's like a chilling image. Like I just yeah, get the chills thinking about it and talking about it now. And it just seemed to me that if you're a white woman, that's, that's what you paint, you know? You don't go verging into narratives that are not your own and that are harmful to other people to confront them with. You look to what, you know, is closer at hand to think about, I don't know, how, how you might actually be implicated in what's happening, not just an onlooker, um, but somehow responsible in some way for American history and for your role um, at your point in American history. So anyway, long story short, it felt like all of these things were just creating productive friction, as you say, and I couldn't not write about it because it was uncomfortable. But anyway, it was actually really useful because it was I was very irritated with the idea of like the, the heroine and the badass woman and the art monster. I didn't want it to be like, yeah, we're all monsters. It's so great. We're so transgressive. Isn't that awesome? I was happy to be able to say like, no, like you can't just transgress and be like, that's it. I'm so great. Aren't I a great like risk taker? Like there are limits to monstrous art. If it's still going to be art that's, you know, worthy of that, that title, it has to be, it has to do its work um, I came back to Audre Lorde a couple of times. She has that amazing quote, and I don't want to get it wrong, but it's like, I'm a black lesbian warrior doing my work. Come to ask you, are you doing yours? And I was like, Dana Schutz didn't do her work, and I'm trying to do mine here. So that was, that was why those chapters ended up right next to each other. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really powerful to think about that because I suppose it also shows up, again, those those tensions between feminists show up again thinking about Lucy Lippard, for instance, right. 
and the pains and pleasures of Reba mm -hmm. and her comments about Wil Wilkie being a glamour girl who sees her art as seduction mm -hmm. and the idea of a woman using her own naked body mm -hmm. as a vessel, as a tool, as a means to make art. Yeah. And the people on the other side who said, but you're actually catering towards this. You're actually catering towards the male gaze by doing mm. this. You're actually doing us as feminists a disservice and those mm -hmm. tangles and those tensions. Mm -hmm. And I suppose that I'd, you know, because, because so much of the book is, is actually rooted in, in thinking about mm -hmm. the 70s and, and, and second wave feminism, mm -hmm. we probably haven't spoken in so many different angles we could speak mm -hmm. about, but I, I'd love to bring you there because mm -hmm. I think someone like Wilkie is so important mm -hmm. to your thinking. But I also imagine that someone like Lucy Lippard also mm -hmm. offers you some thoughts and mm -hmm. ideas and inspiration. I wonder mm -hmm. how you felt about that sort of tension mm -hmm. in the use of the naked body, given that mm -hmm. you also reference and have like interior mm -hmm. scroll over two pages mm -hmm. of pulling, you know, scroll yeah. out of vagina. Mm. Uh, how do you feel about those sorts of tensions or mm. discomforts that were made palpable in the 70s? Yeah, um, I, again, not coming from an art historical background, encountered this flashpoint in my research. I mean, I'd, I'd read in Chris Cross's I Love Dick, there's a section where she talks about Hannah Wilkie and, and quotes Lucy Lippard and is obviously very much on the side of Hannah Wilkie. Um, but I, I, was, I was unaware until I started doing the research of Mary Kelly's idea that, you know, if you depict the female body, then you are, are in some ways, yeah, just kind of, there's no way around giving in to the male gaze. It's going to be there whether you want it to be or not. Um, so, for example, in her postpartum project, um, she doesn't actually depict herself as mother or the child that she was documenting. Um, it's just all, it's pure documentation, like nappy liners and, and you know, like growth charts and things like that. Um, and I was really startled to think, like, I, when I, I, as a, you know, just a literature person, thought about feminist art in the 70s. I thought of this great, you know, Carolee Schneeman and Hannah Wilkie stuff and didn't realize that there was pushback. Um, and so a really interesting moment came for me when I was reading in a talk that Carolee Schneeman gave in 2010 at a symposium about Anna Mendieta's work. Mendieta and Schneeman were friends um, for um, Mendieta's murder. Uh, and Schneeman said in that talk, you know, like, in our own day, the feminists, quote unquote, hated what we were doing. And like, it was incredibly dangerous to be showing the female body the way that we did because, you know, we our, our sort of natural allies were against us because they thought we were catering to the male gaze and we were embarrassing ourselves. Um, and she also says, you know, they had, a, they had a tendency to read what we were doing as abject. They went very quickly to the abject. And that's not at all what we were up to. We weren't trying to say, look how disgusting my body is, isn't it great? <laughs> we were trying to explore, you know, the body in space or the body on the page or the body in the earth. Um, and so that, that was a very big, like, permission-giving moment for me to wade into these debates and to think about, you know, feminism. Obviously, I know this. We all know this. It's not, like, a monolithic idea. We all agree. This is how it should be. There's, you know, different schools of thought and moments of conflict. And I just, until I did the research for this book, had been unaware that there was such a, 
um, a trenchant kind of debate over representations of the female body. And I think it's still with us, actually. I wrote an essay last summer about this material um, for Aeon, and I ended up framing it um, through the figure of Emily Ratajkowski because she just published her book, My Body. Um, and I heard a really interesting podcast that she did with Kara Swisher, um, where Kara Swisher's like kind of calling her out, saying like, you say you're a feminist and you say that you pose in these ways on your Instagram account and in the Robin Thicke video out of like feminist, you know, agency and it's your choice to, to depict your body that way. But like, are you, is it really a choice? Like you're, you're obviously maintaining a certain, a certain idea of conventional beauty and little girls are on Instagram thinking they need to look like you in order to be beautiful and, and you know, you're making a lot of money off of your appearance. Like, are you, are you practicing what you preach or, you know, and Emily Ratajkowski was like, what do they want me to do? Like, you know, get fat, like stop wearing tight clothing. Like, I, I don't know what to say. I can't be held responsible on my own for what like feminism can't accomplish, you know, I mean, I'm paraphrasing. She, she said it a little bit more, um, nicely than that. But I, I did come away from that, that book feeling like it's just a, it's an open question. What do we want from Emily Ratajkowski? What do we want from Hannah Wilkie? Should they be less beautiful? Should they wear more clothing? Would that make us feel better? I don't know what happens, what happens to beauty? What, what, can we still have beauty is, or is beauty just a, not a, not a fair thing that, you know, some people look like Emily Ratajkowski and most of us don't. Um, why do we want to look like that? Why do we need to look like that? Is it even possible to dismantle wanting to look like that? So yeah, I, I don't know. For me, it's, it's, it's a particularly live question that I obviously wasn't going to solve with this book, but you know, was interested in exploring. I, I have so many more questions <laughs> and so many more thoughts from that answer, but I'm also aware, if I'm thinking correctly, that we do have to like break for questions. Ah. And um, so I can see Claire moving towards, I think we might have to wind down, but I suppose maybe maybe just as a closing sentiment before we finish, you know, you, you pointed out if Hannah Wilkie's work is the problem this book poses, Hess's is the answer. And I felt like that was such an, I mean, I loved it on a senses level. Mm. And I wonder just as a kind of closing note, mm. what the question was mm. and what the answer ended up being. Yeah, that's funny. It's, I almost think, I was thinking about this after you sent me that, that note today. And I was like, how, I think actually Hesse's is the answer to a slightly different question. Um, definitely Hannah Wilkie's beauty is the problem that the book poses. What do we do with the fact that she was so beautiful and made this work um, that seems to showcase it? I mean, Lucy Lepard said that she was like a glamour girl and she was trying to seduce. And Hannah Wilkie was like, yeah, I'm trying to seduce. Like, what's wrong with that? Um, art is, is meant to work on the viewer. We want to, that's sort of what I was thinking in, in terms of my idea about re-aestheticizing the aesthetic. We want the work to reach us. Um, and she said in her interview with Cindy Nemzer, the, the art historian, I go into a gallery and all this work on the walls is so ugly. Like, I want to feel like the, that art is more beautiful than I am. She wanted to replace beauty as a value in the art world. And for Eva Hesse, it was not possible. She couldn't admit beauty. She didn't want beauty. It wasn't what she was after. Um, when the guys who were helping her make her piece, Repetition 19, first cast these little, I don't even know, 
like cylinders. They did it so perfectly that she was furious and she made them do it again. She was like, make it less perfect. I just want it to be, you know, ucky. Um, and so I'm not sure that she's actually answering Wilkie. I thought about that again after you sent that note today and was like, they're having a conversation, but it's not closed. It's, that's what Wilkie said and that's what Hesse said. And I think they're both somehow right and they're both speaking to each other and to us, so yeah. Well, I feel like that is a really wonderful way to close. Although, as you can see, yeah. <laughs> so many more questions and maybe someone yeah. else will, will pick up on yeah. some of those questions that I have. I believe that there should be a mic that's roaming. Um, so yeah, if anyone has any questions for Lauren. Don't be shy. We can also talk afterward if it's hot and people want to break up, then that's okay too. Yeah, hi. I think there's a roving mic. I just wanted to maybe respond to that conversation about Lucy hmm. Lippard, who I know, and also in relation to Mary Kelly, hmm. who was one of my tutors and is also a friend. Hmm. In relation to the conversation around beauty and representations of the body because one of the things that I found was interesting is that the art historian Moira Roth who wrote about my series of works called Synapse in which my own body is presented in various forms in a naked state. Um, so Lucy was familiar with that work and I don't I think it's interesting because I was curious how she'd respond to me when I met her in terms of what I had read about her vis-a-vis -vis that particular topic but I also maybe want to raise this issue in the sense that there have been shifts you know in terms of how I think that that particular subject mm. matter has been opened up. And I think one of the other people who maybe, well, certainly in my tutorials with Susan Hiller, she would look at my work and, for example, it was representations of the body. And I think, it, and I'm probably, well, I am paraphrasing, but one of the things she, she did say was, I think it's very interesting that in the 70s, you know, these were the kinds of responses from many art historians like Lippard, et cetera, and, her, and Hiller herself, who resisted representations of the female body by women artists um, in, you know, very sort of na naked states. And she said, but she acknowledged, and I was... Susan's one of Susan's students in between 1988 and 1990 and she was referring to this particular work but she said you know I think it's really interesting that younger generations of artists of artists are re-engaging with that whole concept of not exactly reclaiming our body but reoccupying a space that mm. is somehow denied us and I would also add that, you know, certainly in terms of when I made my Synapse series, I felt very much like I wanted to reclaim a space that was 
being projected onto me in terms of what my naked body or even in terms of my body or identity or whatever could and couldn't be. Mm. So I found that it was important to lay claim to unpacking that mm. in my work in, in different ways. And I, and I do, I, you know, in a way I'm sort of trying to rescue Lucy a little bit and, and, mm. and Mary a little bit yeah. in, in, that, in that sense. Mm. Because I think that the landscape has perhaps shifted. Mm -hmm. But I do feel that those questions around beauty... I mean, the first time I encountered um, uh, Schneemann's work or, um, uh, you know, those extraordinary sculptures... Um, Volvic sculptures, for example. Uh, sorry, I'm still slightly recovering from COVID, so I've got a brain fog moment. By Hannah Wilkie. How, Hannah Wilkie, yeah. thank you. Um, so it, it was really quite extraordinary, and I didn't at that time know that it was Wilkie's work. Mm. So it began to speak to me as a woman, I would say, in a way that other texts within art in art historical framework didn't allow me to engage mm. with it yeah and i guess that that for me is both important and interesting yeah so that's the only point i really wanted to make thank you <laughs> i i try to be fair to lucy and to mary i disagree with them on that point but you know Thank you for the really brilliant conversation, both of you. Um, I was just wondering if you could maybe talk a bit more about a point you made near the start about how the shape of the book changed when you near the start of when you started writing it, when you kind of were pregnant and, and, and having a child and how that kind of mm. changed that process and what the book came, became mm. to be. Yeah, um, it became very fragmented. <laughs> Um, I'm mindful of something Maggie Nelson said in an interview once. She's like, I didn't go to the fragment because of nap time. Um, I did. <laughs> I, I had to write this book in the form that it took because I just, I mean, from the moment I became pregnant, like just my, the first trimester was difficult and I would sleep a lot and cry a lot and be tired a lot and couldn't focus the way that I was accustomed to focusing when, you know, doing doing a book project, when researching a book project. Um, and it just, like, you know, the second trimester was much better. Everyone will tell you, like, that's when you're feeling pretty good and, like, you're getting bigger and it's really funny and blah, blah, blah. And then the third trimester comes and it's like, oh, God, <laughs> when is this going to be over? And you just can't, like, just brain fog sets in and only maybe started to abate a little while ago, and he, my son's almost five. Um, I think I'm out of the brain fog, but maybe not. Um, but yeah, so I think that the fact that, I don't know how else to describe this, it's like you're not thinking with your full brain. It's like there's like felt on your brain or something, and you're trying to think through the felt. So I found that I had to write in um, bits and pieces because I couldn't just like sit down and write a chapter. It came in, and also then once I had the child, a lot of it was in like notes on my phone. Um, and I'd be like walking home from, you know, the crash or something, pushing him in his stroller and then like have a thought and be like, oh, right, I jot it down in the notes app. And then I'd get, get to it like two weeks later and be like, what did I mean by that? And so you'd have to re-enter the text anew every time. Um, and then there was COVID. And I wrote about this a little bit in the book, like going to the, when finally we could go to libraries again, um, 
my local library, the Art History Library in Paris, was doing this thing where you could look at a book for one day and then it for 48 hours it had to go into the vaults and be like deep cleaned, whatever they did to it. Um, you couldn't have it back. So I could read Ava Hesse's diaries on a Monday and a Thursday and the following Tuesday. But like, it's really hard to do kind of engaged research with Ava Hesse's very complicated and hard to read diaries when you're only getting and, you know, to look at them every few days or something. So it was a real experiment in like maybe distant thinking, like getting very up close and then having a lot of distance, then getting up close again and having a lot of distance. So yeah, if that makes any sense, that that's sort of how it took the shape that it took. Yeah, I'd just love to say that it's been such a pleasure to speak to you. And I know that we'll keep speaking. Yeah. And yeah, don't forget to buy the book and say <laughs> hi to Lauren. And yeah, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.